culture. 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 Equality, equity, and justice. Mm -hmm. Religion as culture. It's hard to define. Belonging. I would get passed over. Conflict. Conversation. There are conflicts that happen. It's life. Celebrate differences. Compromise. Cooperation. Culture. Mm -hmm. Culture and belonging. Welcome to the Culture and Belonging podcast from Troy University and the Office of Institutional Research, Planning, and Effectiveness. I'm Rich Lede. And I'm Wendy Broyles. Despite their reputation for quiet, school and public libraries have become the subject of a heated national debate. What if someone sent this book to your son or daughter? Would you embrace it and accept it for Christmas? Or would you find the nearest trash can and throw it in the trash can? School boards and local governments across the country are facing pressure from activists to pull certain titles from library shelves. In the first eight months of 2023, there were nearly 700 attempts to ban library books, according to data from the American Library Association. The activists claim the books are immoral, often citing depictions of LGBTQ characters or themes, but opponents of the bans say it should be up to individuals and parents to decide for themselves what is appropriate. Finding themselves at the center of this debate are school and public librarians. Our guest today is Dr. Chris Schaefer, Dean of Libraries at Troy University. We'll discuss the controversial efforts to ban books across the country and librarians' role as keepers and curators of culture. So how do you define culture? I don't know if I define culture. I think it's different things for different places. I do think we are a difficult country if you want to define culture. Mm -hmm. I'm a, a lapsed history teacher. I had a moment of clarity uh, about two decades ago. And I, I go back to manifest destiny and things like that. Take to the road, freedom. I mean, I, mean, I, I, could, I could give you a hippy-dippy uh, essay in, you know, how is freedom expressed in Smokey and the Bandit and Cannonball Run. So I, I do think this, this concept of, of freedom, I want to do whatever I want, I, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do, I think that's pervasive. Mm -hmm. I think we have an expansionist, everyone's got to do what we want side to American culture, for better or for worse. I mean, it's true. But when you look at uh, America, I think it, it becomes tough because part of our culture, like it or not, Republican or Democrat, is diversity. And you, you have this going through our entire history of we're isolationists, we're anti-immigrant, but then they get here and we're like, that tastes good. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so we, we often end up being pluralistic in spite of ourselves. Maybe there's a deep thought somewhere in all that. Well, I think there is because your definition of culture or your hesitancy, I would say, to put a definition is is kind of reflective of what what the concept is it's a hard concept to nail down but mm -hmm. it does seem like your idea of culture kind of taps into the situation right it's a situational thing mm -hmm. and at the end of the day as academics we we still need to define our terms mm -hmm. and you know i think maybe when we have conversations about culture it's important to kind of specify what we're talking about mm -hmm. because we do have these big macro aspects of culture, you know, race, religion, 
class, creed, but then it is, it's also a micro phenomenon. It comes down to the way we treat each other in the organizations that we work, um, but it also, it's even smaller than that. What are you eating for dinner? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that there's, I think you're still being specific about how you use the word culture, even though, you know, we've all admitted it's difficult to define. I think every one of our guests has, has said that, you know. Well, I think it is, and uh, my, my father owned a bookstore. I run a library system. So I, I think about books. I taught AP history for years, and after they take that test, it's all over. I mean, there's really nothing else to do. But we, we would actually have some conversations, and what we discovered was that as a child, all of us read the same books. Oh. I had read all the same books they had going from like five or six years old up until I guess they were 17. So, so that can be such a unifying thing. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, you don't see people reading, and in many cases because they can't and because their parents can't. I'm interested to hear what other books everyone had read between 5 and 17. They wouldn't be a huge surprise with things like Madeline Lingle mm-hmm. uh, and A Wrinkle in Time and, um, you know, Are You There, God, mm-hmm. thing, which, which wasn't one of mine, but I didn't, you know, need that one for help necessarily, <laughs> except to be more sensitive maybe. But it was a, a lot of the mainstream books that you would expect okay. uh, a, a kid to have read. So... What is the librarian's role in preserving culture? And I don't just mean we collect the books, mm-hmm. because we've we had a conversation with another librarian, uh, Olga, mm-hmm. and I really started thinking about the importance of the librarian in terms of helping to maintain the culture. But it's more than just we collect the books. One of the things we can do, and I... I've tried to do a lot of it, I've tried to encourage my people to, is uh, have regular programming. And, and, and we direct that not just at the student body of the faculty and staff here, but also to members of the community. And I started doing this in Dothan about 2007, but we have done French film fe- festivals, Spanish film festivals, international film festivals, independent film festivals. Those scared me at times. They could be a little... Uh, <laughs> Not X-rated, but racy. You know, it, it, it is a conservative audience we're often uh, dealing right. with. Right. Ne- uh, by the way, never had a complaint. Oh, good. Not once. Uh, one time I didn't preview the film. There was something in it that probably would have caused me to self-censor. <laughs> and the next day I got a phone call from someone. He said, uh, I was in the audience last night. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> and he said, uh just just a great movie. Thanks for, for doing this. Uh, my daughter is uh, finishing her library degree. Just wondered if uh, you knew where she could get a job. Oh. And uh, I was wow. like, whew, that was close. <laughs> and, and also, I, uh, I've, I've never been censored by Troy. That's good. I've found it to be, you know, they have a genuine respect for academic freedom and let me probably do some wacky things here and there. And so I've appreciated that. Uh, I, I think if I were a public librarian today, I would be terrified. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I, I, I do think to some extent you have to um, to know your community, mm-hmm. and so so you can do collection development that way. But at the same point, we have come we 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 have reached a time in our history where it seems like one random nut can say, "I don't like that book," oh, yeah. and you don't you know if 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 you don't. Uh, 
pull the book, which, by the way, is the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. You do not pull the book. You know, you're about to have a major fight on your hand. And it's going to be about something that didn't even matter. Mm. And nowadays, those issues in libraries, which we're, we're seeing today, like this, this is happening, mm. time now. I guess from my perspective, it's if, if you pull those books from the library, people are going to find books anyway. Yeah. You know, especially with the Internet, mm. you know. Oh, well, I mean, really, I mean, like, you can look at any of these books that have been banned recently and go look at their Amazon sales rank. Spikes, right? And they That's are right. doing great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, too, like, when you tell children they're not supposed to do something, they tend to want to do it more, saying, let's ban these books. And it's generally, you know, they're, they're, there's an opposition to the content, of course, but it's the world we live in is has LGBTQ plus persons in it, mm-hmm. and you can't just make that go away. We have a situation where we're trying to censor history, and it's it's not going to work. Yeah, you know. Well, I mean, if you get rid of the book, the people are still there. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about giving in to the people who want to ban books, if if you're doing it because you think they'll shut up and go away, they're not. Mm-hmm. Now you've given them a win, so they're going to go find more books they disagree with. Yeah. Um, you know, we had this wackadoo in Tuscaloosa, who's in the state legislature still, I think, who wanted to ban every single book that had anything that would promote homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, define the word promote. Hard to say. But essentially, you're banning a lot of Shakespeare at this mm-hmm. point. Because yeah. really, it was taken by many of us to mean anything that had a mention or, you know, you know touched on the, the topic. Oh, wow. Well, and it's hard to write laws that are specific sometimes, you know. So when you just have a blanket ban for content and you're not specific about that, you're going to put librarians and teachers in a bad place. Mm-hmm. And state legislatures, I, I'm not convinced that all state legislators care. You know, they're mm-hmm. trying to appeal to a base of people that, for the most part, have never stepped foot on a college campus except to go to a football game. Right. But now, I just got back from um, a conference in Dallas, the Association of Holocaust Organizations. I've never felt so good about being from Alabama in my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Florida has gotten insane. Yeah. Yeah. The concern is that they're going to have them, uh, the the legislature may have them ban Anne Frank. Oh, geez. So Wendy's making faces over there. She can't fathom that. Why? Oh, because it offends some people. Uh, but still, you know, history offends some people. But there are um, there are two angles on this. One is actually easier to address. There is a an updated version of Anne Frank out there, and there are things that her father had not wanted included in the original book. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she is a girl who is growing up in a bizarre situation and she starts noticing changes in her body. And she writes about that. Yeah. So that's one thing. Then the other is this whole issue of, and, and, and you see this with teaching any kind of African-American history too, you, you have people saying, oh, well, it's gonna make my kid feel bad mm-hmm. because people who were white did this and they did that. and. You know, for the love of God, no one should ever discover the concept of empathy. So It's one reason we're having these conversations, Chris. Efforts to ban books are only going to make, you know, like you just said, it's going to make these books more popular. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, Some efforts to ban books are saying, you know, blaming 
these books for indoctrinating children. Mm -hmm. Well, pulling those books off of the shelf is also a form of indoctrination because you're not allowing children or even, you know, young adults to have a different point of view. So you're advocating for one point of view over the other and you're really not giving your children or, you know, teenagers, you're not giving the benefit of the doubt. As I've pointed out to some of my more conservative-leaning friends, don't have that many, but um, if your belief system is superior, then it's going to win, right? Right. But if it's not, well, why are you so – your belief system's not superior, and you probably know it. That's why you're trying to prevent people from learning about other other things, Mm -hmm. you know? So – that's 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 me on my high horse for like the eighth time today. So you wrote a book. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that book? Be glad to. And 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 this you know this was just fun. So in 1993, I went to Slovakia to teach English. Found out about the opportunity while backpacking two years earlier, a uh, year and a half earlier when I was doing the abroad program at Auburn, and uh, I was in Prague and there was a sign on a telephone pole and it said, if you want to come over here and teach English, tear off this number, call us when you get back. Turned out it was out of the University of South Alabama. Oh, wow. And you found that in Prague. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the organization was Education for Democracy. I like it. Got a a big article in New York Times back from the 90s. You can Google it. I had a degree in pure history, not education. Uh, which I still say, by the way, is a great idea. I'd encourage everybody to go get degrees in, in the humanities and liberal arts, and that's how you end up getting culture, by the way, because you have to learn it. There's nothing wrong with a trade school, but you know that, that, that's not what we really want to be at a four-year school, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, went to Augusta University, got certified to teach, and they took me and... Uh, Fourteen days after Slovakia became an independent country, the Velvet Divorce, when they broke up with the Czechs, I found myself living in Bonskuba Streets of Slovakia, which is a beautiful medieval mining town started by the Fugger family. Just had, had a wonderful experience. So you wrote a book. So I wrote did a book. Did you intend to write a book when you went there to teach English for democracy? I did at the end of the experience, but um, the last night there... So, so, uh, so Bonskipa Streets is the, the town, and we lived in a suburb with all the, I call them Stalinist Towers, all those apartment blocks that all look the same. And so it was like four miles out of the city, Sosova. And the last night I was there, we had a going away party, and I was standing on the balcony, one room to sit. You could see the, uh, a full moon or something close to it. Well, the whole winter, it had been cloudy and raining, but also uh, everything was coal-powered. So, you know, when you're coming home in the evening, everyone's turning on their, <laughs> their heat, and you, it's just brown. Mm-hmm. And so it was this beautiful, clear night. There was a moon. I, I told the guy I was talking to, I said, look at that. There's a moon over Sosva. And I was like, that is a name for a book. If I, if I, ever, if I ever do it, I'm going to name the book that. And I had... A lot of journal entries from that trip. I, I actually did journal while I was there. I had letters that I had received from people. And then uh, one of my best friends died, and his brother found all the letters I had written him and brought those to me. And This is the end of the Cold War. Yeah. yeah. This is the early 90s. Yeah. And I w- uh, a phone call cost about $45 for a half hour. Yeah. Maybe just 20 yeah. minutes. Phone cards. 
Yeah. You got to put in a whole lot of numbers to use yep. that card yeah. and then the phone number. Yeah. And by the way, I was dealing with a country where something like one out of four, maybe, was it one out of four or one out of ten, had a telephone in the yeah. apartment. Yeah. And so you had to go to the post office. And they didn't know what credit cards were. Mm. And so they would tell you, you can't do this. It's impossible to do this. And finally, you would get them to uh, put the call through. And I was like, you just dial this number, and then I'll put in the stuff and talk to an international operator. And then they would think you're somehow hijacking their system <laughs> and, and stealing the minutes. Uh, and they would listen to you. But, uh, I, mean, I mean, we're only three and a half years removed from communism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you're cut off from, cut off from your own culture, mm-hmm. cut off from your family, cut off from your friends. And really having this immersion experience. Yeah, and, and, and it, was, it was great. And I, I never felt culture shock. There were not a lot of Southerners doing this. There was one woman from Mississippi. I remember her. But it tended to be Northerners and Westerners. And one of the things that was just driving them crazy was the food. <laughs> because they all wanted a salad. I've, I've never asked for a salad in my life. <laughs> I mean, everyone's impressed because I now will eat a salad if I go to a restaurant or something. You know, it's just socially awkward not to. So anyway, their uh, big dishes were essentially pork schnitzel, so fried meat, fried mushrooms. They had a fried cheese. Great concept. Goes great with beer. So, so all of these things, and then they had whatever vegetable was in season. It's pretty cold. Think root vegetables. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're wanting uh, kind of like uh, on Seinfeld, you know, they want a big salad, and they, and they just were not getting it. And they and they, they were like, how how do they live on this stuff? And I'm you know, I'm from Alabama. I'm like they're deep frying everything. I love this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I had a a little boy I taught. I think he was maybe ten years old, and I. I was teaching him privately, and he didn't speak a word of English. And of course, I was not trained to do this, but you know, chair, you know, desk, and you just, uh, you know, he repeats, learns words. But his mother, in addition to paying me, would make me lunch mm. of each lesson. So I taught him Monday, Wednesday, Friday. When I was six feet tall. I weighed 120 pounds. I just, I couldn't, couldn't catch up to my metabolism, no matter what I did. And so. It was sort of like they, they thought I was going to die and they'd all be responsible and there'd be an international incident. Uh, Slovakia is five and a half million people. They couldn't go to war with the U.S. Uh, they had 22 MiGs. They could only go east to west because if they went north to south, they'd invade Poland or Hungary by accident. So, but anyway, she, she had me come to Sunday dinner every week oh, wow. not don't teach just let's let's try to keep you alive for another another week <laughs> you're we too to, thin we need to feed you <laughs> we need to feed him <laughs> and never had the same thing twice oh, in that's a half cool. year and uh, just just wonderful food wonderful people so the book description on amazon for moon over sasava mm-hmm. it ends with this line all people have far more in common than they realize so that might help us pivot into how we define belonging. Yeah, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon because I've never really cared whether I belonged or not. Okay. Uh, That's American culture right there. I, it, it is a little bit. Yeah. Uh, American culture of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you, you know, a, a lot of people 
uh, were were really who, who cared about me, and as I get older, the number you know is dwindling. Um, were really concerned about me going over there, uh, my grandmother in particular, and uh, worried that you know I would, I don't know, get killed, drop dead, do whatever I, I did, and. Almost to a person, everybody was nice. Everybody was welcoming. I don't know if you could duplicate that today because we were a novelty. Yeah. And, I, I mean, very few people spoke English or German because those were, you know, the bad languages, languages of capitalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could find somebody who uh, spoke French quite often because it's language of diplomacy, so it got a pass. I really think one of the things that helped, I mean, in, in 91, when I went there and found out about the opportunity, again, you know, Americans were in, and the um, this optimism about democracy and the future, I mean, it was so prevalent. It was a really nice time. And you had all these posters everywhere you looked, Havel Narod, uh, so Václav Havel to the castle to assume the presidency, because he had been one of the leaders, the leader of the the democratic movement. So anyway, I ended up going to Prague on that trip by train from Vienna and started talking to a, a Czech gentleman. And uh, he spoke German, so we would speak broken German together. And when we got to the border, he got off the train and uh, came back with beer and apples, good combination, and gave me those. Then we're pulling into the station, and he says... Um, where are you staying tonight? I, I said, well, you know, I was just going to crash in the train station tonight because it's already, you know, 10 or 11 at night. And he says, it's way too dangerous. You can't mm-hmm. do that. And he takes me to the Chadock station, which is the state travel agency. Communism lingered. And found me an apartment, walks me to the apartment, and you know, make sure, you know, you may be a complete idiot, so let's be sure you understand how to lock and unlock a door, you know, that kind of thing. Well, his last train, the last subway, was about to run. And he was risking not being able yeah. to get to his own home to make sure this, you know, skinny uh, American dork, you know, was able to safely get to an apartment because you're a, a visitor in our country and, you know, the, also the United States has helped us. Mm-hmm finally, you know, shake these people off. Yeah, and well, and some, for some people, that sort of hospitality is, is not even yeah. an option. That's yeah. required. And I know? think that was yeah. the case, but, but as far as did, uh, did I feel like I belonged in 1983, mm-hmm. I felt like I belonged before I got there yeah. because of incidents like that. So we like to have a, a, a moment. If nobody gets anything out of this conversation but this Right, like what? What is your teaching moment? What is the one thing you want people to take away from this conversation? Travel. One of the things we should all do is travel as much as we can, meet people, and uh, and, and and have real experiences. Don't don't do superficial travel. As a rule, don't do some kind of package tour. Yeah. But you know, just just go explore because it it actually is not all that hard. And uh, and you will you will learn so much. You will be a better person. You will be a more knowledgeable person. You, you know, I, I've I've been in so many situations in my life, and you'll have two probably where somebody says one of the best things about travel is it makes you appreciate home so much more. I think that's a crock. 
uh, because it always ends up with, you know, let's wave a flag and, a, you know, yay America. And I'm, I'm very much yay America. I think mm-hmm. America is wonderful. But other places have a great deal of yeah. value, too. Mm-hmm. And I've been to 21 countries. I would go live in 20 of them tomorrow and be quite happy. And it doesn't mean that I don't love the United States, but they're great places with people and they have their own great culture. And I think, you know, I'd be quite happy And if I had ended up being born because it's all just this random luck of the draw. Right. You know, where, where good point to were remember. you when you came out? That's right. You, you know, I, I don't think we should ever get to the point that we go from being patriotic to nationalistic. And it's, there is a fine line. Our guest for this episode of Culture and Belonging has been Dr. Chris Schaefer, Dean of Libraries at Troy University. We hope that you'll subscribe to the Culture and Belonging podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And get involved by tweeting us at belongingpod. Give us your ideas on what cultural topics we should cover next. Your idea just might end up on the show. Culture and Belonging is produced by Troy University in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Austin Toy and Joey Hudson with help from Kyle Gassett. So until next time, I'm Wendy Broyles. And I'm Rich Lede, and this is Culture and Belonging. Culture and Belonging.